you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Well, uh, good morning. What a weird few weeks it has been for all of us. Um, the sickness and the just, it's been running through our church and our workplaces and um, those of you that avoided it, the first wave somehow caught it, the second wave, and I think we're on like wave three now, so who knows, maybe I'll get it next week again, so I'm very grateful that we're all here in health. Um, if you guys could just be praying for those that aren't here, there's a lot of people that want to be here and be out serving, but um, as it would have, we're all sick, so um, thank you for letting me stand before you today and, and bring the word. Um, it's no, it's no small, small honor of mine, and, and I'm very, very, <clears throat> very grateful and, and pleased and, and um, humbled by it. So today I'm going to quote uh, a lot of scripture, and I'm going to quote a lot of theologians, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to go home. So that's my plan. Uh, the last time I preached, I had two verses, uh, and this time I have 21. So I hope you don't have anything going on tonight. Um, I'm sure the Chiefs will do fine. Um, <clears throat> on a real note, we're going to be covering some, some heavy truths today. Uh, every comfort you need, every comfort um, that you could want, can be found in Scripture. Um, my, uh, the title of my sermon today is called Answers in Grief, um, so I will try to keep it, um, try to keep us focused. Uh, to quote Psalm, or to paraphrase Psalm 19, God's word is more precious than fine gold and it's sweeter than honey. So I'm overjoyed to be wrestling uh, with these hard truths with you because that's what community is. It's rejecting the lie that you are uh, alone and it is <clears throat> letting the Holy Spirit that is in others uh, minister to you and it's letting the Holy Spirit that is in you minister to others and also love on you so that we, um, we can be stronger together. So... In the midst of our darkest and most alone moments, we reveal our most important belief, how we view Christ. The passage we're about to read begins with giving us context and painting the scene of a man <clears throat> in the faith who has just died. Right? Brandon talked about it last week. And then it gives us an actual documented view of how Jesus himself comforted a sister in the faith with truth in the midst of her darkest moment. And then it shows us how he comforts another sister in the faith in the midst of her darkest moment. So, two different ways of comforting people in the midst of great loss. And then as we come to a close, we're going to see a verse that is both the shortest in all of Scripture, in English, and one of the heaviest. It's a verse profound and telling and pregnant of God's character. And when we pray, take communion, and leave today, my prayer is that that verse of all of them will be heavy on your hearts throughout your week, and life hereafter. Also, as it were, the final verse we have is also a great example of our own character. So if you're a new believer, or an old believer, and you're still trying to look for yourself in Scripture, don't do that anymore. But if you're trying, you need only look in the last verse. All of that being said, let's read. So if you guys wouldn't mind, open up your Bibles to John 11, um, and then stand with me as we read. We're going to be reading 17 through 37. <clears throat> now, when Jesus came 
he found that Lazarus had been has had already been dead. Sorry, already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem and two miles off, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary, sorry, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you were Christ, you were the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, and his spirit was greatly troubled. And he said to them, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Scripture. Thank you for this story. Um, thank you for the wonderful miracles that you did in Lazarus. Thank you for the work that you did in Martha and Mary's life so we may glean from it and learn from it. Um, I pray that we're able to uh, meditate on your word this week and go home and love our families and communities well with the truth that you have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, thank you guys. Appreciate that. Um, I'm going to reread 17 through 19. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. We know that when it says Christ found that Lazarus had been dead four days, it doesn't mean that he was surprised here. Found here means that when he walked into Bethany, the scene was already happening. Mourners were there, decay had started to set in, and the will of Mr. Lazarus was being read. Roger Roger Fredrickson says in his commentary, there had been a a day's journey for them, that is Jesus and the disciples, to the Jordan country. And then Jesus staying on two days before taking the the day's journey to Bethany. We know from what Brandon said, this was incredibly uh, intentional. So if we look at last week's passage, we see that Jesus was told Lazarus being sick, and then he waited, adjusted course, and then went to him. And then spoiler here, Jesus knew the condition, both alive and dead. Right? He knew Lazarus, he knew him, he's the God of the universe. He knew the moment he died, which looks to be right about when the messenger got to him. But why wait? Why not heal him while he was sick? We wrestled that uh, with a little bit of that last week. So there are likely two reasons. The first is that it enabled Lazarus to die. Cold as that may seem, but this is one of the main miracles that he performed. If you can name all of them right now, all of the miracles, write them down, it would likely be turning water into wine, 
healing the blind man, calming the storm, and then raising Lazarus. You didn't even think about the fig tree. The second reason is deeper. The significance of the four days is very important here. Most any study Bible will spell out the Jewish belief that the soul of the departed hovered over the body for three days. You can look at, this is everywhere. The reasons Jews believe this is that they thought the soul was hoping to return, and when decomposition set in, the soul would get sad and leave. This is important because according to Jewish tradition, Lazarus would have been long dead. His soul would have been gone. There's not a chance that he was resurrected by this superstition. This, like all of Scripture and human history, will drive home the point that God is to be glorified and he does not share his glory. Due to how close Bethany was to Jerusalem, many of Martha's friends were able to make it to their side. After four days, many more were able to arrive. We know that Lazarus likely had money, for we see Mary blessing Jesus by anointing his feet with expensive nard. And so a crowd was expected to gather, especially at the, at the death of the well-off family. So we can see this gathering start to form, as with most things, where a king goes. But unfortunately, also as with most things where a king goes, enemies also start to gather. So we were gathered, he would perform this main miracle, he would be surrounded not only by those who were amazed and would bring him worship, but also by those who would end up putting him to death. We see that a little bit later on. Nevertheless, a community started to form around Martha and Mary, which we've established as hardly a surprising act, even if they were not wealthy. We may not have the same traditions as first century Christians, but generally when a loved one passes away, others will surround them in grief. Though a poor catalyst for it, we see this example of community reliably when someone passes. In the last few months, we've had an insane amount of either deaths or incredibly close deaths. Um, I was thinking about in October... I think there was a point where we had seven father figures and they're either in the church or outside of the church who were very close to dying or had passed away. Um, yeah, and so when that happened, we joined together, we prayed, um, we, we wept together. It was hard. It was a hard, it was a hard season. Um, but, like I said, we see, we see this community start to form. And we like to welcome it because we want to be together and we want to process death with someone who cares. Of that, Bonhoeffer says in his chapter on community and life together, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The believer feels no shame as though he were still living too much in the flesh when he yearns for the physical presence of other Christians. Man was created a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body, and he was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body, and the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfected fellowship of God's spiritual physical creatures. And then later he says, Visitor and visited in loneliness recognize each other, in each other, the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. They receive each other's benedictions as the benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally he says, Let him thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. He was German, after all, and you don't say anything in German unless it's worth taking a very long time to say. Our world is tainted by death, and our lives are shaken. We were reminded that it is still here. A bit ago, a friend of mine from high school took her life, and leading up to the funeral and trying to process that this person was now gone, a mutual friend of me pointed out that we have a hard time understanding death because we weren't created to. We were created, and then we, not knowing the gravity or the of what we were doing, brought death into the world. So when the bitterness of death cuts 
cuts through us like wind, we often find ourselves reeling. And how do we view Christ in that moment? And this, this state of shock is where we find the sisters. The sisters, who we remember, are from Luke 10, 38-42. We remember that story pretty well, but I'm going to read it. Because we need to remember the, <clears throat> the characteristics of Martha and Mary. So, Luke 10, 38-42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which not be taken away from her. Uh, we will see Martha white-knuckling her faith. She heard the Savior coming and wasted no time. She went to him, just like she did back in Luke. I'm going to keep going on. So now I'm back in John, and I'm going to read 20 through 27. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, just like in Luke, right? But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We see the first of the two familiar sisters run out and meet Jesus. Fredersen points out that her busybody nature, hurrying around just like she did in the original story we hear, her first words of Christ are, if he had been here, her brother would not have died. Theologians disagree about her implications here. Carson says that she was not rebuking. She was, in fact, making a great claim of faith. She is confident that if Jesus had been present while her brother lay ill, he would have healed him. And of course she would believe that. Think of all the sick and lame that she has seen or otherwise heard about Christ's healing. She knows it's well within his power to heal the living. But before we get too far, I want to draw the setting for you. Martha rushed out to meet Jesus. She was likely an emotional wreck. And since she's the analytical one of the two sisters, she's worried, sick about how her and Mary are going to get by without her brother. And while these things are just repeating over and over and over again in her mind, the first word she can think to say are, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Whether this is a hindsight statement or an accusatory one, it is false. Why? Because he was there. For every death, including the introductory death, he has been there for every single death. He will give the ultimate death. And he will be there for every death until he brings a new heaven and a new earth. Martha did get one part right, and here it is. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We as Christians know this to be true, right? We have the luxury of being able to read the next few verses. Last week, Brandon talked about, let's just hold off on knowing that we can read the next part, and let's try to sit where Martha and Mary are. We don't know what's about to happen, and Martha doesn't know what's about to happen. Neither does Mary. All they know is what the Old Testament uh, predicted about Christ, what they told about what he would be like, and what Christ has done thus far. We know who Christ is, and we, we have the luxury of knowing what he would do. And more importantly, what he would do on the cross in his resurrection. But these girls do not. We have been so blessed with Scripture to be able to know that we can just read the no, next verse. 
And what a blessing that is. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But she only knew from what she had seen and heard uh, up to this point in Christ's ministry on earth, like I just said. And I want us to think on and understand for a moment that she has no idea what's about to happen. Yet she has the same perspective that the blind man had toward the Pharisees when he rebuked them and said, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God will listen to him. Psalm 34.15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are toward the cry. But we know that her claim isn't entirely genuine. Boyce points out later that when she says whatever, she doesn't mean resurrecting her brother because she rebukes Christ when he, says, when he orders the tomb to be rolled back. We're getting ready to dive into the discourse between a holy God, infinitely relatable, and a grieving sinner. And what does the Lord Almighty say first? He says, your brother will rise again. D.A. Carson calls this a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. At one level, Jesus' words, your brother will rise again, could be taken as no more than a devout orthodox attempt to provide Martha with solace by drawing her attention to the resurrection at the end. But on another level, Jesus is promising a more immediate resurrection for Lazarus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is a long-standing belief about the resurrection. It was prophesied about in Daniel 12 too. So Martha is not amazed to hear this. But, when Jesus, but we see Jesus strengthen this belief by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, it shall he live. Sweet church, I want to go into this so badly. I really do. Every syllable of Christ can be studied for a lifetime, but I cannot today. So I will rely on the Apostle Paul to put it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26. Flip over there real quick. Nope. Skipping over it. Should have marked my pages. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26. Here writes Paul, But in fact, <clears throat> Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And pay attention to this last line. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last miracle He would do would be reverse death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hallelujah. Christ diverts Martha's attention, as Carson puts it, from focusing on the death and a miracle that didn't happen Right? Not yet. To the source of life and the only conqueror of death. Bonhoeffer says the fact that Jesus died is more important than the fact that I shall die. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too shall be raised on the last day. This is where Christ wants Martha's heart. And this is where our heart should be in our darkest and most alone moments. But Christ goes on. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe in this? Do you believe in the goodness of God? In the midst of your darkest and most alone moment, do you believe in the goodness of God? 
I want you to sit there for a second while I take a drink of water. <laughs> I'm not standing before you accusing. I'm standing among you wrestling. Where are hearts running when they are breaking? If you don't have an initial answer, our Martha gives, our Martha here gives us a sweet place to start. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Theologians call this faith's foothold. Her confession here is now part of what a lot of us say when we're baptized. Where is your faith rooted? To what words do you cling when your entire stability is shaken? Focus not on the act, like Bonhoeffer said, but on he who saves. Focus on the living water, not on the well. Moving on. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling to you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the, sorry, was still in the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews were, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had, not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. First, I want to notice the contrast between Luke 10, Martha, and John 11, Martha. In Luke 10, we see her trying to call her sister away from the Lord, right? To go do chores. Now we see Martha calling Mary to be in community with the Lord during likely one of their darkest days. This is an example of a disciple listening to Christ. Voice points out the one-to-one evangelism here. Martha is hurting and Mary is hurting. Yet there is this personal evangelism that we should take notes from and apply appropriately. Martha whispers to Mary that she should run to Christ. Run to God, because He is steady, His will is unhindered, and He is not surprised by this death, and His emotions are reliable. I want you all to note that what I just said is not me saying that God is indifferent and stoic about death. But that is my favorite part of the sermon, so I won't go there yet. Back to where we were. Mary quickly rose to meet Him. Mary, the one who knew of the gravity of being in Christ's presence back in Luke, now is the latter one to go meet Him. When she responds, we see her say the exact same thing that Martha did. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But look at her posture of this claim and how different it is. Mary is also a wreck at this point. You read this, you read this and you can just so clearly see her sobbing, almost inconsolable, sprinting to the Lord. She fell at his feet just like in Luke and she worshipped. And how did he react? How did he react in contrast to how he reacted to Martha? Peaceful and loving silence. Fredrickson describes this interaction by saying, How tenderly Jesus meets us with words of life and the other with wordless acceptance. So he meets each of us. Each of us. Where we are with our needs and with what little faith we have. Do not take this next point as a license to be egocentric about Scripture. But the Lord knows and responds to us individually. And how does he respond to Job when Job loses everything and lashes out at God? Well, he responded with Job 38. And 39, and 40, and 41. Job was in his darkest and most alone moment, and he revealed what he believed to be true of God. And the Lord grabbed him by the shoulder with one hand and pointed his face in the other and said, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, little man? Tell me if you have understanding. Little man added. But in this where were you moment, how does God enter it? With great patience. And he weeps. The God of the universe. He weeps. Reformed believers have this 
tendency to lean into the camp that has Christ be cold and indifferent and assume He was cold and indifferent when He scolded Peter. And we tend to think that His relational capacity is confined to that one interaction with Peter. When in fact, the truth is that Scripture tells us that His heart breaks for humanity. Death is what He came to conquer. And He will. And He knows this. But that doesn't hinder His empathy. Adversely, He isn't disinterested. He mourns with them. Let's get into that now. <clears throat> when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, and in his spirit was greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. I love this interaction. We're going to pull over here for a second and look at yet another foreshadow of the greatest triumph in history. Here we have Christ's people leading him to a grave, right? Where he would triumph. We have a king here an all-knowing, all-powerful king who steps onto the scene of of a brokenness his kingdom should have never experienced. And look at his tenacity for resolve. Point me in the direction of death, in the direction of my enemy, and I will handle it. In other words, I'm here, where's the problem? The little boy in me reads this and thinks of Jesus in Revelation, wielding a sword and getting ready to show just how powerful he is. And he takes that sword right to the grave. Here our Lord insults death again. He has shown that there is no power death that he has that he cannot stop. Now he's getting ready to show that there is no power that death has that he cannot reverse. Soon on Calvary, he'll put a final end to death, crushed under his very heel. And now we've come to the apex of our sermon. Every theologian, pastor, elder, deacon, disciple, minister, member of the church has a connection and a word to say on the next verse. Even so, as Spurgeon puts it, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration. Fredrickson says, what a lesson Jesus' tears are for our churches. We are so unbelieving and sterile, so uncensored and indifferent. How bereft we are of honest emotion. We can neither laugh nor cry. When was the last time we stood with Jesus before death in unbelief and wept? I'll be honest. That quote hurt me. Back during our last family meeting, I was struggling to check in emotionally. I get my emotions so invested in whatever catastrophe social media is spouting off that hour that I find myself not being able to care deeply about the church like I'm called to do. I also had no attention span. I couldn't memorize scripture. The words that sat on my heart all day were whatever headline I had read about whoever's incompetency. I wasn't relying on what the Lord had called me to do as a man of faith. I was relying on whatever emotional high I could get. So I repented and deleted all my apps because I need to focus on you guys. About a month ago, a company called Evergrande, or Evergrande, I don't know, was set to declare bankruptcy. I'll spare the details, but this multi-hundred billion dollar company is a key part of the Chinese economy, which is also a key part of the world economy. Should they go belly up, it would almost be a shot-for-shot remake of 2008. A lot of the guys in finance were biting their nails when this happened. At the same time, there were about 100 cargo ships off the coast of California, unable to be unloaded. So, some of the guys in my work chat, including me, were starting to get worried about it. But then, something exemplary of the gospel happened. Sorry guys, I'm going to steal this illustration. (laughs) Sage shared a new worship song that he had just heard. And then Anthony commented about another song by the same singer and suggested Sage look it up. And then Brandon, being the music guy that he is, looked up both the songs and a lot more songs by this guy 
and responded with what joy his heart had because of those songs. So on the brink of one of the many seemingly imminent global collapses, I got to see a community of dudes worshiping the Lord and encouraging one another. And I'll hold on to that forever. I don't know what happened with Evergrande or Evergrande. I don't know what's going on with the cargo ships off the coast of California, and I don't really care. I know that where I'm at and where Christ has called me to be, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on. So don't get so worried and invested in the world that you become bereft of honest emotion. The God of the universe weeps for sin. And if you cannot, maybe examine why. So, verse 35. Jesus wept. Boyce says that there is a law that the shorter the passage, the longer needed for explanation. The longer the passage, the shorter time needed. This is the shortest passage in English and Scripture and demands the most teaching. We have been talking about this verse for our whole sermon. And I implore you to study this verse among your families and during quiet time this week and life hereafter. If a child sees their daddy crying, they pay attention and are immediately wondering what is going on. Here our Lord is crying and we should feel the same. This is not the only place where we see Jesus weep. We see Him do it again over, in, over Jerusalem in Luke 19, 41-44. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And it was prophesied that he would weep, right? Isaiah 53, 3-4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So why was Jesus weeping? What did Luke 19 just say? Lazarus was in heaven, friends. He wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping for us. Look at the context. He looks around. He sees her weeping. He sees her loved ones weeping. And then he weeps. Why? Because his people were never supposed to know death. We never should have had this experience. We were meant to be in perfect and consistent eternal life with him, never tasting death. The group around these two women should have been 10,000 years into worship and not yet on their second thought of praise. We should have, have been in community with Him in the garden, working and loving, and yet the world is so marred that we cannot escape the promise of our obituary. If 2020 through 2022 has taught us anything, it is that we are so gripped by death and our feeble attempts at avoiding it that we turn to whatever three-letter organization we can because we think we can outsmart death. We want to act like we're living in power, but these acts in reality have us living in fear. But friends, just like there will be war and rumors of war, there will be death and rumors of death. I should not have to say, don't take what I said as license to live a wild life and start doing superhero landings off roofs. But like Jory said a few months ago, don't let fear snuff out community with the Lord and with your brethren. The last few verses, here we go. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There we are. Why did Christ not heal everyone? There were still lame. There were still dying people. Lazarus, after his resurrection, he eventually died. But what was Christ's reason for healing? Whatever is his reason for anything? 
The answer to this question must be the answer or basis for an answer for everything that happens to us. God's intentionality is in stake here. How we answer it solves our problem. In our darkest and most alone moments, our answer for why He let Lazarus die and why He let Martha and Mary mourn and why He wept and why He let Jerusalem be raised to the ground, that answer is the most important answer we have. And that answer is so the work of God may be displayed. Greg said a couple months ago, we must see that all of it becomes an opportunity for God to display His wonderful works of light through it all. There is nothing too far gone for Christ to reveal His power. The death of Lazarus is an event that God uses to illustrate the Gospel. A man, believing, loved, and likely wealthy, wealthy, dies a death he could not have stopped. Another man, hated and poor, reverses a death only he can do because of who he is. Lazarus was dead, brought to life by Christ. And he was dead four days. Bethany was hot. The idea of a resurrection here was so far removed from thought that the act could only bring the Lord glory. But we want to rob that glory. Verse 37 is a great illustration of our hearts. Well, if God did this for him, why not for me? Why am I not the center of this plan? The last verse is so entitled, so ignorant, and so relatable. Though it may not directly bless you, are you joyful when the will of the Lord is accomplished? Like I said earlier, there have been some exceedingly dark moments lately. There have been times where I've called other brothers in the faith feeling quite discouraged so that I may be blessed by their ministering. But the darkest moment in history was God's most triumphant when the very Son of God surrendered His Spirit on the cross. But God revealed His power. He unveiled His plan. He crushed death. And He reminded His faithless and despairing people who it is that we should base our hope in. So how do you view Christ? 